Hello, I'm Tracy Metz. Welcome to Water Talks, The Big Five. These are a series of five conversations with people I interviewed for this podcast about the UN Water Conference and the New York Water Week, made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. Some of our guests had such amazing things to say that we wanted to give them more airtime. This is the longer version of my talk with Russell Shortow. He's an American writer and a historian, and a former director of the John Adams Institute in Amsterdam, where I am his successor. He is the author of The Island at the Center of the World, a book about New York in the 17th century when it was the Dutch colony New Amsterdam. He recently founded the New Amsterdam Project under the auspices of the New York Historical Society. For Water Talks, he walked me through 17th century New York and told me about the city's intimate relationship with the water around it. We are in the middle of New Amsterdam. Actually, we're at the northern edge of New Amsterdam. The street right behind us, which is called Wall Street, the wall that was built there was the northern perimeter. We're at Federal Hall, where George Washington was inaugurated, and the New York Stock Exchange. The street that meets Wall Street here, Broad Street, is so called because the Dutch built the canal up the middle. And they had, just as in Amsterdam and in Dutch cities, they had walkways on both sides. So this was the broadest street. You have devoted much of your professional career to the history of New Amsterdam and then later to New Netherlands. And one of the things that you talk about a lot in your book, The Island at the Center of the World, is how the Dutch influence, the culture of tolerance and multiculturalism in an early stage, made New York what it is now. In general... If you look at 17th century America and the cities that developed and then go into the 18th century, New York had a very different trajectory from Boston and other cities along the coast. And there's one clear reason for that, because it was started by the Dutch. In 1643, supposedly, there were 18 languages being spoken in New Amsterdam, and that was at a time when there were only about 500 people here. That likely only covered the European languages. So it didn't cover Native American or African languages. It would be probably 26, 28 languages. I'm here in New York this week because this is the first time in 46 years that the UN is holding a conference on water organized by the Netherlands and by Tajikistan. And around that, New York has organized the New York Water Week. What is the tradition of water management that you can still see here in New York? Well, the Dutch developed the building blocks of capitalism in the 17th century. At the same time they founded this place, they also, as we all know, pioneered water management a thousand years ago or so. The reason they were attracted to New York was the water, this world-class harbor, and then its connection to the interior, because you've got two rivers here, on either side of Manhattan, the East River over there, and the Hudson River. The East River is just a really a subsidiary of the Hudson that wraps around that side of Manhattan. But the Hudson goes all the way north to Albany, to Beverwijk, as the Dutch called it, and further north. But at around Albany, it connects to the Mohawk River, which goes all the way west to the Great Lakes. And they understood that. The Dutch settlers knew, ultimately, what you wanted was access to the interior, and there were no highways. Water was the highway. So they had this dream of eventually developing that. And it became reality in the 1820s when the Erie Canal made it a navigable waterway. When that happened, 
New York takes off in its industrial era might, and all the cities around the Great Lakes come into being, Duluth and Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland. So in that sense, you know, you can look from what the Dutch did in the 1600s to the whole development of the middle of America. What a fantastic story, Russell. Why didn't I learn anything about this at school? I guess my book wasn't written then. Oh, that must be it. (laughs) Uh, So the Dutch were interested in New York because of its maritime trade possibilities. Exactly. And they made extensive use of that, shall we say. Now, of course, we look at water in a very different way. Since Hurricane Sandy, 2012, we can also see it as an enemy and something that we need to defend ourselves again rather than moving towards it. How do you see New York changing under the pressures of climate change and a different attitude to water? Well, New York, from the Dutch period onward, for a long time, was very focused on the water. People who lived here and worked here knew that that was their bread and butter. You know those pictures of the late 19th century and early 20th century of Manhattan Island with all the piers sticking out of it like spikes. The city was oriented toward the water and toward the world. All the world's goods could come to New York, into the harbor, up the Hudson, into the Great Lakes, and so on. And then in the 20th century, something strange happened. It started to kind of turn its back on the water. For one thing, you can point to Robert Moses, who re-engineered the city so drastically and built highways running right through the middle. And basically, the city started to turn its back on the water, to wall it off, to wall off views of it. it it's kind of hard to see the water in a lot of places. and um, It's hard to even physically access it. Exactly. Places to swim, for example, or even to just walk along the shore. That became the norm. It was, but, Russell, that difficulty of access to the water, that was not a question of fear, but because the water was really used for trade and shipping. I think it had to do with the transfer from trade and shipping to rail and trucks and the automobile. You know, when they were building highways, that became the focus, and the water was almost a nuisance then. And then, of course, starting really with Hurricane Sandy, that's a very clear delineation in New York's awareness. Compared to other tragedies, there weren't a massive number of deaths. I think it was 43 people were killed. But major thoroughfares were turned into rivers, and so much damage was done, so many houses destroyed, And it really made people realize, oh, these warnings we'd been getting for years, we now have to do something. We can't live the way we used to. And since then, you see the city beginning to turn around again and face the water and realize we have to live with it, which, of course, the Dutch realized a long time ago. My butt got cold. Mine too. Russell and I started walking again through Lower Manhattan, searching for a warmer bench, and I asked him about his current baby, the New Amsterdam Project. Russell, it's so wonderful to walk with you through this part of New York and hear these stories that just as a passerby, we have no idea. Yeah, cities are like that. I mean, if you're at all historically inclined, I think you have that longing to hear the whispers of ancient conversations and what people went through in the past. So it's great when you can actually focus on a piece of it. Here, it's always the Dutch period. I'm always in the 1600s when I'm in this area. I don't think of it so much as the financial district. You're working on a huge new project now, Russell, called the New Amsterdam Project. Tell me about it. It is at the New York Historical Society, which is the oldest museum in New York. We've started the New Amsterdam Project 
which looks at that period of the history, of course, but also at the themes that come out of it, water being one, capitalism, pluralism. These are all things that are incredibly relevant today. We do the climate lab where we have people, typically people who are experts on one facet or, or another of climate sustainability, resilience, especially in New York. We do something every month that we call Live from New Amsterdam, where we have someone who is an expert in one aspect of the Dutch period of New York's history, whether it's the Native American perspective or blacks and slavery or what have you. And next year will be the 400th anniversary of New Netherland, the founding of the Dutch colony that became New York. And so we're planning a big museum exhibition around New Amsterdam and a symposium on the Dutch role in the transatlantic slave trade. And that will be an exhibition at the New York Historical Society, but also at the Maritime Museum in Amsterdam. We're talking with them about follow-up and with the John Adams Institute, which is a very revered organization in the Netherlands about doing a follow-up event in Amsterdam. In the middle of the noisy sirens and the hip coffee places, Russell and I are mentally deep in the past. We're standing at a busy intersection across the street from a famous 17th century tavern on the water's edge, Francis Tavern. In the Dutch period, Francis Tavern, which is very famous because that was a tavern in the Revolutionary Era, it was where George Washington said farewell to his... <laughs> it was where George Washington said his famous farewell to his troops at the end of the war. In the Dutch period, that was underwater. This was the shoreline, basically right up the middle here. So Pearl Street is so-called because it was the beach. And there were a lot of oysters. New York was famous for its oysters in the Dutch period and it, through the 19th century. And when I've given tours down here, I'll walk the perimeter of what was New Amsterdam. And when you walk down Pearl Street, you just say, all of that is water. All of that is the East River. And the first houses went right down there, and then we're going to walk down here. Those were the first houses built in New Amsterdam facing the East River because the ships would come into the harbor and they would anchor out in the river here. And at the other end of this block, there's a marker on the pavement indicating what was originally the city tavern because you would row in from the ship to the wharf and then you would just go right into the tavern. And then when after this debate or this struggle between the inhabitants and the West India Company here resulted in New Amsterdam getting a municipal charter, so it was chartered as a Dutch city, that became City Hall. That was the Stadthouse. You mentioned New York and Pearl Street and its oysters. There's a big new project going on now for a couple of years to protect New York from the sea with a natural barrier made of oyster shells. Yeah, they're, and well, made of cement blocks and things like that, but the idea is then oysters build reefs along it and then dozens of other creatures come and it becomes a it's called the living breakwaters the project this section of staten island that's where hurricane sandy really did the worst damage that's because it's exposed you're at the open ocean and so that has to be protected and what happened was over the decades when new york was such a major shipping hub they dredged that to make it accessible for ships that could come in, and then that exposed the city to this kind of damage. 
Little did we know. Exactly. We live and learn. <laughs> or not. <laughs> so this was the first row of houses in New Amsterdam here facing the harbor and the East River. The beach was basically where the street is. And then uh, Pedro Stuyvesant built his home on this corner. It was a big brick house and it was painted white, which is supposedly, I don't know if it's true, why this street is called Whitehall. So over there is the uh, Staten Island Ferry Terminal. And all of that, again, is water. The corner of the building here was where they had a windmill and they had the flags and everything. That was the edge of the harbor. Over here on the right, this big building, the Custom House, which was designed by Cass Gilbert, the architect. Oh, of the Woolworth um, building. Yeah. That's exactly the footprint of the fort. Everything was built clustered around the fort. Russell points out all the various sites in the New York Harbor. The Statue of Liberty, Brooklyn, New Jersey, Governor's Island. I ask him, why did the Dutch choose this particular place as the capital of their new colony, which ultimately stretched from Delaware to the Canadian border? His answer, like it always is in New York, it's location, location, location. This was what it was all about. This is why they came, and this is why they got so excited, starting with Henry Hudson, who was an Englishman who came and explored this on behalf of the Dutch East India Company because he was looking for a shortcut to the East Indies. And then in his wake, so to speak, you had a whole host of different explorers starting around 1614. The West India Company were organized in 1621, and then in 1624, they sent their first settlers here. And they originally thought that Governor's Island would be the capital. After a couple of years, they realized it was too small, and so they moved straight across here and started their capital. But it was all about water, and you see it here. I'm writing a book now about the English takeover of New Netherland from the Dutch and the actual founding of New York. The English come in ships, and they're out there in the harbor, and the Dutch are here in New Amsterdam, and they're sending messengers back and forth on boats. It's like this chess game, almost, that takes place right here. Richard Nichols, the captain of the English forces, he's first out beyond Staten Island at Sandy Hook because he had four ships full of soldiers and armaments and all that, but they got separated. So it was just his one ship, and he's like, I'm about to do an invasion, but it's just me. So he waits there, he anchors there. The Dutch are completely aware. They see him, they're down here, they're in pandemonium, and. Uh, so he has to wait, the rest of them show up, and then they go not immediately to New Amsterdam, but to Gravesend. Uh, around the corner in Brooklyn is the community of Gravesend, and there's a bay there, and he anchors there, and he makes that his base, because Gravesend was a very multi-ethnic colony, and that was an English community. So he had all these contacts there. So that became his base, and it was from there that he would send messengers on to the ferries on this side, and they would ferry across and deliver the message to Stuyvesant in the fort, and then Stuyvesant would give his answer. And the first one, it was great, the first message, there's this big buildup, okay, Nichols is coming with the English soldiers, what are we gonna do? And Nichols sends his first official message saying, basically, we've come because this is really his majesty's land and you don't have a right to it. And he sends it and it goes by messenger and they bring it into the fort and Stuyvesant returns it because it was unsigned which I think gives such a great indication of Stuyvesant's personalities. I can't even read this because it's not official, it's not signed. That's ballsy. So it has to go all the way back, and then it comes again, and then he adds a little note, which we have, it's in the archive, saying, 
I'm sorry, too bad I neglected. I've now corrected that mistake, and please read the damn note. I feel a movie coming on. <laughs> yeah, right. If you stretched all of that coastline out, it would be longer than the state of California. It's an enormously vast and intricate network of waterways and coves and runnels and rivulets. It's a regional story. It's a regional solution. It has to be. And what struck me after... What struck me after Hurricane Sandy was that the Bloomberg administration put a lot of effort into this big 250-page report of what we have to do. I think New Jersey was mentioned one time and Connecticut was mentioned one time. It was like only New York City mattered. And, of course, as the Dutch know better than anyone, these things are regional. The water knows no borders. Exactly. Certainly not political borders. That was Russell Shorto, taking me through 17th century Dutch New Amsterdam and showing me how this place came to be the island at the center of the world. Water Talks is a program by me, Tracy Metz, written and produced together with Jonathan Gruber. The show notes have links to Russell Shorto and the New Amsterdam Project. Make sure you check it out. Next up in this companion series of interviews to Water Talks is Matthijs Bal, a Dutch architect and urban designer who has been working on making New York climate-proof for the past eight years. Our theme song is called Into the Unknown by Poddington Bear, with additional music from Jason Shaw's Running Waters. Water Talks was made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. I'm Tracy Metz. Thanks for listening.